If you'll remember, I said this section here in chapter 30 on through the remainder of the chapter, there are there are six sections of four things each. And, and, and I, I, you know, I, I've got to confess, I'm not smart enough to tell you exactly why the Lord laid it out that way, but I know he had a good reason. And so we're looking at each one of those sections, and tonight we come to verse number 15. And uh, here in this section, verse 15 and 16, we see four things that are insatiable. That is, they cannot be, cannot be satisfied. They're just never enough. And so, here's what he says. The horse leech hath two daughters, crying, give, give. And there are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things say not it, it is enough. The grave and the barren womb and the earth that is not filled with water and the fire that saith not it is enough. Now, in connecting these verses to what has gone before, I think we see the folly of trying to fulfill human lust. Let me let me just go back and read that last verse of the last section, verse 14. There's a generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives. Notice, to devour the poor from off of the earth and the needy from among men. Why? Why in the world would somebody do that? I mean, if you're going to attack someone, looks to me like it ought to be the rich and famous, not the poor and needy. I mean, really, uh, and it's been that way throughout all of the centuries where people seemingly, for some reason, take advantage of the poor. And that's what we see there. So there are people there that are not satisfied with what they've got, so they take from the poor and take from the needy. So with that in mind, I think there's a natural connection between what he just said and, and the four examples that he's giving us uh, here tonight. And he's trying to show us the folly of trying to fulfill the human heart. And he likens lust here to a blood-sucking leech, which is a disgusting illustration when you think about it. And uh, you know, words are actually never enough to adequately describe the awfulness of the human heart. You, you know, regardless of how bad we try to make it seem, it's worse than that. He just got through speaking about covetousness and cruelty, taking advantage of the poor, taking advantage of the weak. And uh, I think maybe that's what he has reference to. Notice he speaks about the two daughters of the horse leech. So maybe that's what he's talking about there, covetousness and cruelty. But whatever the case, the point is the same, and that is that there are people that are never satisfied. They continually cry, give, give, and the more they get, the more they want. They're just never satisfied. The horse leech here is an aquatic uh, blood-sucking worm that in, in those days especially in the marshes or the pools of water without running water that would attach themselves to the tongues and the nostrils of the horses. And uh, I remember my first, uh, this afternoon I was reading this and I thought, Strangely enough, I remember my first experience with leeches. Now, it was not that kind of a leech. It's, uh, you know, the typical leech that we have here in the States. Uh, 
but uh, I'll ne- never forget. I don't know exactly how old it was, but I know it was in the Sauk River up in a little place called Collins, Missouri. And uh, I'd spent my lifetime on the river and the lakes fishing. And, of course, at that time I was probably 10 or 11 years old, maybe, something like that. And uh, anyway, in this particular area, my buddy and I had gone up there with his folks, and we decided to go swimming. And uh, during the course of the swimming, we dis- I discovered what leeches were. We got out and leeches uh, on us, you know. I'd, I'd never experienced anything like that. I'd seen crawdads, and, but most of the rivers I'd fished in been, you know, real clear, sparkling uh, rivers, running water, and we didn't worry about that. But up there in that backwater of the Old Sock River, uh, it, it was a different situation. And uh, those leeches get on you and, of course, suck the blood, and, and, and they can they can fill up with five times their body mass in blood. It, it, they just keep going. And, and that's a app picture of of our human nature that we're always lusting, craving for more, regardless of how much we indulge while we want more. That's the kind of world we live in. Uh, Those that are bloodthirsty, they want more blood. You look over in the Middle East, what's going on there. And after all of these many centuries, you would think that they'd finally come to their senses and say, you know, this killing business isn't working too good. Wouldn't it be a whole lot better if we'd just draw some lines in the sand? You stay over there. I'll stay over here. I won't shoot at you. You don't shoot at me. But it it doesn't work that way. It goes on generation after generation after generation of people shedding blood. When it comes to thrill seekers, for example, even thrill seekers are never really satisfied with, uh, with whatever it is that they do. You know, they decide to get a dirt bike and they'll go out and ride the trails. And after a while, that's not good enough. So after a while, they've got to put up some ramps and jump some ramps. And after a while, they want to try one of those evil Knievel tricks or something like that. And it doesn't make any difference what people do. If they climb a mountain, what do they do? They look for a higher mountain. They want a bigger challenge. They want a bigger thrill. And they're never satisfied. That's the way it is with the drunkard, you know. Yeah, you would think you'd go out and get drunk, have a hangover the next day, he's perfectly miserable, makes a fool out of himself, and what happens? Well, the very next day, he wants another drink, you see. That's the way lust is in regards to sin. It's never enough, just crying out for more and more and more. That's one of the things that leads to what is known as perversion, and that's why here in America and around the world we see sexual perversion uh, in every sort imaginable and some things that you never even dreamed of. You see, people just keep pushing the envelope, keep going further and further because whatever it is they're doing after a while, that doesn't satisfy any longer. And so it's got to be something new. It's got to be something different. And they're never, ever satisfied. Now, to illustrate this, he mentions these four things. Now, notice what he says. He talks about the grave, first of all. He says, the grave, never satisfied. Think about all the people that have died throughout history. Think about it. If I'm not mistaken, I believe I read there's 103 people every minute that die. 6,300 people every day 
that die. No, that's every hour. 6,300 people every hour. So since an hour ago, 6,300 people have gone out into eternity. And the graves just keep swallowing up victim after victim after victim. And regardless of how many people fall, the grave is always calling out for more. You know, you go past the cemetery and you look at all of the grave markers lined up there. And you go a little further in town and you come to another cemetery and there's all of those grave markers, row after row after row. You know, as soon as they fill up one plot of ground, they start another. And there just doesn't seem to be any way to end it at all. The grave is never satisfied. And that's the way it is with our human nature. And then he gives the next example, the barren womb. Now, a lot of people look at that and they say, well, boy, I sure don't see any connection here. Uh, you know, what, what does that have to do with anything? They feel that way because in the world that we live in today, people are satisfied, a lot of people, I should say, a lot of people are satisfied without having any children. In fact, that's the way they want it. Don't want any kids because the kids would get in their way of their fun time. They don't, you know, want any kids. It'll put a strain on them financially. It'll, you know, it'll hinder their career or their plans or whatever it is. But let me tell you, it hasn't always been that way. This is a different generation than anything we've ever seen before. And especially when we think about the Jews, because among the Jews, the desire for children was great. I mean, they considered children to be a blessing, a gift from God. You know, a lot of people today look at it like it's a curse from God to have kids. And, uh, uh, but in those days, they wanted children. That's why Rachel cried out. She said, give me children or I die. In other words, I can't go on living like this. I'm barren. I want children. Give me children or I die. And today, you know, you, you, know, you can't look at this so-called liberated women of our day whose only concern is for self-gratification. And, and you see that they have no desire for anything that's going to hinder them. But let me tell you, it is a God-given desire for women to want to have children. Now listen, I'm sorry if that offends you. Uh, and I realize whenever you deal with issues like this, there's always somebody going to get their feelings hurt, saying, well, that's my business, don't you butt in. Well, you know, if, if the Bible says that children are a gift from God, and happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them and so forth, uh, I, I think we ought to look upon children as a gift from God. And uh, the re one reason it bothers me so much is because I am offended when women who have several children are made to feel guilty about it. And I'm telling you, it happens. You know, somebody have, have a child and then another one, another one, and they get up to, you know, that three and four mark and people start looking at them, you know, in an odd way and you know, making little snide remarks about you know how to stop that, don't you, and stuff like that. And uh, uh, th that's offensive. I'll tell you, it's just natural that a woman wants to have children. And uh, that's the point here. And, 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 and he, he's just telling us that for a woman to be barren like Rachel, she said, I, I can't live like this any longer. Now, he uses the third illustration, and it has to do with the earth. 
How many, anybody here from West Texas? West Texas, you won't admit it, will you? Man, I, I, I love Texas, but I don't really like West Texas. I remember years ago, I, I preached several revival meetings uh, uh, out in West Texas, uh, Lubbock and uh, where, where's the, two or three other places. And uh, uh, when I started, I'd never been there before to speak of. And uh, anyway, I got to going back. The church had me every year or two come preach a revival. And uh, you'd stay in the motel room. The next morning you get up and there's a big pile of sand in your room. And the first time I thought, what in the world? They must not clean very good here. And, and, and lo and behold, the next morning I had another pile of sand in there. And, you know, and come find out that's just the way it is. And Brother Rick's from Oklahoma. He knows a little bit about parched, the parched earth. I mean, up there, boy, that, I remember the, the droughts they used to have in Oklahoma had worked their way over into the Ozarks and we'd be affected by it and so forth. But here's the point here. This parched ground, he's saying, it seems to just swallow up an unending supply of water. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about those dry, arid countries back in Bible times there. And when a rain finally came, you know, it wasn't like living in Houston where, where we get so much rain. Over there, it was just an occasional thing. And when it finally came, it was soaked up quickly and the soil was ready for more there was never enough and so he's using that illustration again to show us something about our human nature whether it's the grave whether it's the barren womb whether it's the earth he's simply saying those are things that you 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 can't satisfy because there's always that craving always that desire now he moves on to the fourth illustration and he uses the subject of fire to illustrate his point. And this analogy really tops the list, I think, because, you know, we might imagine some end to the other things that are mentioned. You know, we might imagine, okay, uh, someplace get 50 inches of rain like we did here, and uh, you got enough. You know, the earth is saturated, we're flooding, and you you might imagine a woman you know she she has eight or ten kids and that's enough. I mean it's easy to imagine that. You might even imagine the grave. You know we've increased longevity. Or, well, I say we have longevity has increased. I should say God had a lot to do with that, don't you think? But it has increased since the old times and. In fact, you look here in America and just in the last hundred years how longevity has increased. And so you can imagine some end to that. But now when he comes to fire, that it's a whole new ball game now because fire consumes an unlimited amount of fuel. It devours everything that is combustible and there's no end to it. Because the more fuel you put on it, you know, the greater the fire, the larger the fire, and it just keeps going and going. It would never run out as long as there is fuel put on it. And that's the point there. That's the way it is. And remember, I turned over here to James the other day and was reading about we are tempted whenever we're drawn away by our own lust. 
I made mention of the fact that we have our own built-in source of temptation. If the devil died, and if nobody else ever tempted you, if there was never any outside source of temptation, you have within your own bosom a source of temptation that you can't get away from. It's your own lust. And, and, and as long as that lust is there and feeding the flames of desire, that's the way it is. And that, so when he talks about fire, he's talking about something that will just absolutely keep burning on and on and on, just like our sinful desires are never satisfied because regardless of what's done, uh, regardless of what we get, regardless of where we go, regardless of what we do, we always want something more. Now, there's a reason for that. Anybody know what that reason is? The reason for that is that God wants us to find our satisfaction in Him. I I remember preaching about the fact, does God want me to be happy? Yeah, He wants you to be happy, but... And and remember, I've often said, you know, the people that try the hardest to be happy are the most miserable because they keep trying to be happy. You don't find happiness by looking for it. That's not the way it comes. Happiness comes as a result of you doing something by way of the Lord, and, and the Lord is the one that imparts that happiness. God wants you to be happy, but God wants you to find your happiness in Him not in other things. God wants you to be satisfied, but He wants you to find your satisfaction in Him. And He's the only one that can satisfy the craving that is in our heart. And you mark it down. You'll never be satisfied apart from God. That is absolutely impossible. It's like, you know, whoever it was that said talked about that God-shaped blank within each and every one of us, that void there that nobody but God can fill, and that's so true. Those of you familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes know what Solomon did. Solomon was a man, of course, being in his position with his money and everything. He literally conducted an experiment, and he said, you know, I tried wine, I tried women, I tried works, I tried wealth, I tried everything under the sun. I mean, that's a no-holds-barred approach to life. I'm going to try it all. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to find something that satisfies me. And the bottom line is, whenever, when he come to the end of his experiment, he said, it's all vanity. It's just a soap bubble world that we live in. Nothing can satisfy, you see. And that's the point he's trying to make here. By nature, man, man's sinful nature is like that. You can't satisfy it other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to Christ, all of a sudden, we find that contentment is possible. By the way... The only place you can find real contentment is in Christ. And oh, by the way, that's a commandment. The Bible commands us to be content. Think about that. You know, we think about all of the other commandments that God has given, and we attach a great deal of importance to those things. But some way, when it comes to the matter of being content, ah, we... Well, we give ourselves a pass on that one. We just don't treat it as though it's all that important. But it is a command, and by the way, it's a choice. It's a choice. I say it's a choice because, as Paul said, that he said, I have learned to be content. 
He wasn't content by nature. He was just like everybody else, you see. But he had learned to be content. Now, if Paul could learn to be content, then we can learn to be content. If God commands us to be content, we certainly can. Because God's not going to command you to do something that he knows that you can't do. If you're a Christian, there's no need for, for any Christian to be discontent. Covetousness is the opposite of contentment, which is strictly forbidden. And we live in a, we live in, in a world that is never satisfied, doesn't make any difference, you know. Uh, the, the more we get, the more we want. Now, I'm not, I'm not just talking about money when I say that. I'm not just talking about material things when I say that. I'm talking about in every area of life that there, there is this dissatisfaction. And so uh, this is a warning that he's given to us. And he gives us these four illustrations showing us uh, the difficulty of this. Now, we come to verse 17. Now, remember, I said there are six groups of four things. And we're going to get to the next group next week, picking up in verse 18. But there's a verse 17 between verse 16 and verse 18. And whenever we look at it, it doesn't, doesn't look like it fits with anything. It doesn't look like it fits with what he just said. It doesn't look like it fits with what he's going to say next. But I think it does. I think it's referring back to the sin that he mentions in verse 11. Look back at verse 11. He says, There is a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. And so here he's looking, looking I think, back to that, and you'll see why. Verse 17, The eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother the ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. Wow, that's kind of gory, isn't it? Think about that. Never that I know of has there ever been a, gen a generation that had a greater need for hearing this than the one that we live in today because I, I don't think there's ever been a time where there was such disrespect for authority and lack of affection for parents. And, and let me tell you, when that happens in the home, it has an effect on, on the entire society. And I want you to pay close attention to what this verse says here. Notice what they do. Notice they mock their father and despise to obey their mother but notice there's nothing said here about words or speech did you notice that doesn't say one word about words or speech now usually when we think about mocking and we think about despite and whatever you know we think about the expression of our words but it didn't say anything about words notice here the eye in other words they do it with their eyes what God is saying is that, that this attitude is reflected in their eyes and that alone is sufficient for Him to judge them. Now, notice it's not talking about us judging each other. Not saying, you know, for you to go gouge their eyes out. That's not what it's saying. But He's simply saying it's grounds for God to judge them because God, by looking upon their eyes... You know, and 
and just what shows in their eyes, the expression of their eyes, God knows what is in their heart. You know, if, if, if I had all of the young people in the church assemble right now, I, I would illustrate this by them in regards to how they look at their parents. You, you ever stop and think about that God takes notice of the way that a child looks at his parents? Now, mom and dad might not be looking. You know, mom and dad might turn their back and go on about their affairs and what have you, and they're busy doing things. They're not looking, but that kid's looking at them. You know, that kid cuts his eye over there, and boy, I mean, that you can just, at least God can see the rebellion and the stubbornness and the bitterness that's in their eyes. Now, remember, God judges us according to what is in our heart. It's real easy, it's real easy for us, you know, to deceive others by putting on a, on a, on a good front and making it appear that we're something that we're not, but God looks on the heart. Now, if the eyes are the window to the soul, we had better make certain that there's no irreverence in our heart. You know, everybody knows we, we ought to refrain from verbally or physically mocking uh, or despising our parents. Everybody knows that. But what he's talking about is just the manner in which we look at our parents, you see. And when we do that, and God takes note of that, it's like inviting God's judgment into our life. Now, don't, don't get confused. He's not just talking about children here. You know, when he talks about us honoring or respecting our parents, that it, it doesn't say you can stop with that when you're 12 years old. He doesn't say, you know, whenever you get to puberty, you can quit that. He doesn't say whenever you get 21, old enough to buy liquor, you don't have to respect your mom and dad anymore. No, God expects us to show respect and love and obedience to our parents regardless of what the age might be. And God takes this serious, and that's why he made such a gory illustration. You know, if that doesn't happen, the ravens are going to pluck out your eyes, and the young eagles are going to eat your eyeballs. God's wanting to get our attention. He kind of has a way of doing that, doesn't he? I mean, he knows how to do it, and we best listen. You know, I have, I have no way in the world that I could properly illustrate the importance of the family. The family is the bedrock, you might say, of the society. It's, it's the foundation upon which society is built. And if the family goes awry, then all of a sudden we know we're going to have problems throughout all of society. There's going to be that ripple effect. And we're all going to suffer as a result of it. That makes it absolutely essential that we do our best to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's what Paul said. Bring them up. Don't let them just come up. You bring them up. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, kids will be kids. And I've often said that. You know, in their defense, I've often You know, a lot of times we expect I think we expect too much out of kids a lot of times. Some people do. Kids will be kids. 
they're going to say dumb things, do stupid things. They're, kids will be kids. Let's face it. Here's the point. That doesn't excuse us from doing our duty to correct them whenever they're wrong. When they back talk, when they're disrespectful, when they're disobedient, they need to be taught a lesson. And certainly the Bible has a great deal to say about that. And, and, and it's too many times that parents, out of their own selfishness, they don't want to deal with junior. You know, they, they'd, they'd, you know, rather just let it go, give him a pass. It just makes me so mad whenever I'm in the store, and I, you see it all the time too. Be some little kid pitching a fit there and pulling toys down off of the uh, off of the shelves and everything else, and mom's trying to corral it. And she said, "You do that one more time, I'm going to spank you." And, and she says that forty eleven times. She just keeps going, going. I, you feel like going over. Said, "Lady, if you don't mind, I'll help you out. I got a belt here, and I'll blister his bottom." You know, but but look, we need we need to deal with 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 the disrespect and the disobedience of kids. I'm not talking about being cruel to them. That's not what I mean. We ought to love them enough to let them know we're not going to tolerate that in our home, you see. And think about it. The, the, parents, the parents are the first authority figures in a child's life, right? You're the, first, you're the first line, in other words. If they don't learn respect for authority there, guess what? When they go out the door and they go to school and they go out into the world, they're going to disrespect authority out there. And as you know, they're going to end up getting in trouble. All because, and you know, we always blame the kid, don't we? Boy, what a bratty kid. Yeah, he'd been down to juvie two or three times. That kid's going to end up in prison. That kid's never going to amount to anything. You know, he'll never be good for nothing. You know why? It's not the kid's fault. It's mom and dad's fault that he ended up that way. And if they would have corrected the child and loved the child as they should have, you know, in the beginning. And, you know, I know every parent here, we can all look back. I certainly can. I'm, I'm not sitting here trying to leave the impression that I've been the perfect parent. I got a, a son right here to let you know I'm not the perfect parent. I've never been. And, you know, parenting is kind of one of those learn as you go things. And about the time that you get them all raised out the door, you, you know, well, now you kind of know how to do it. But you didn't really know how to do it when you was going through it, you see. You were just learning yourself. But there's one thing they need to learn, and that is to respect authority. Whether it's the guy with the badge, whether it's mom, whether it's dad, or whoever it is, that for their own sake, they need to learn to respect authority. Now, probably there's somebody here tonight saying, boy, you've just made much ado about nothing. You know, you think, you think all of this has been just uh, uh, focusing in on little petty things, minor issues that that we should have just ignored and got on to something more fun and exciting. Hey, how about some prophecy? Let's go to Revelation. Let's, you know, let's figure out when the rapture is going to take place and find out who the Antichrist is going to be and find out, you know, what the mark of the beast is going to be. And I want something that is exciting, something that is important. Well, let me tell you, if you don't see anything important in this, you've got a big problem. 
Because all of this has to do with our attitude toward, not just toward authority, but our attitude toward God and trusting Him for what we have. And certainly whenever it gets down to the focal point on the family, it, it, it is crucial because, as I said, the family is the foundation that society is built upon. And society, you know, as goes the family, so goes the whole society. Everything begins to unravel and come apart, all because the home, you know, wasn't built on a firm foundation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think there is a connection with verse 17, and I think it connects to verse 18 and Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, we'll be in verse 18 next week. Thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate your faithfulness. So good to see a new family like the Smiths and to see them. You know, it's always exciting whenever you see somebody join the church. But let me tell you, it's doubly exciting when you see they don't just join the church, that they're being faithful. And man, the doors are open and they're here. And that's just a real blessing to me. Anybody have a final word before we before we go? Maybe something we forgot about or all minds clear? What time is it? Oh, we got five or six minutes. How about we sing a chorus and then brother Brother Keith Campbell will dismiss us in prayer. Don't forget to pray for his mother. Let's all stand up to him, lead us in some course, please.